Greetings from the banks of Lost Creek in the foothills of the majestic Cascade Mountain Range in Oregon. You're listening to the Called Out Cafe podcast, and I'm your host, Doug Hooley. This is episode number 14 in the series titled, Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. It's based on my most recent book by the same title. If you're new to this podcast or series and are concerned about what this might be about because of the title, Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus, let me try to put your mind at ease by saying that I am not in any way suggesting that we abandon or leave our faith in Jesus. I am suggesting we do just the opposite and refocus and strengthen our faith in Him by adopting a more biblical model of corporately following Him, as opposed to what's taking place in the church today. I'm also not saying that we should abandon our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. I am suggesting that we strengthen relationships with authentic followers of Jesus. And I'm not saying that true believers in Jesus should stop meeting together. I'm saying we should re-examine the original basis and purpose of gathering together. If you want to learn more about what I'm saying, Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus is available on Amazon.com. If you can't afford a copy, then you can download one for free, uh, a PDF file, if you go to my website at DougHooley.com. So, I'd also like to ask that if you find this podcast of value, that you click on the like button and and then share it with others. If you're listening to this on YouTube, please click on the subscribe button. I found uh, that the more people that do this, the more likely others will be able to find this podcast. Well, as promised last time, let's talk more about Paul's letter to the Ecclesias. Last time, we talked about his letter to the Romans, so let's pick back up with his first letter to the Corinthians. As we do so, please remember, if we've already previously addressed a topic relating to the gathering of the Ecclesia in a previous episode, then even though it comes up again in the upcoming letters, or the one today, we may not be addressing that same topic again. Well, the first thing I want to briefly mention is found in chapter 4 of the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul's views on how to support himself while on the road when he was on a missionary journey, you know, would probably never be used to recruit new missionaries in the church today. Listen to this. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless and we labor, working with our own hands. Paul was supporting himself. We know Paul did accept gifts of support from time to time, like from the ecclesia in Macedonia and Philippi, but the norm was for him to provide for himself, and not only provide for himself, but others who were traveling with him. In the letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, verse 14, Paul thanked them for their financial support, even though he didn't ask it from them. And he wrote the church in Thessalonica this, Remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. 
That's from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. When he wrote them again, he said this, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were there with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. That's from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7 to 8. You know, we're, we'll talk some more later about money and giving and that kind of stuff when we get to chapter 9 in this uh, book about compensation for the clergy. But for now, you know, if we're going to use Paul as our example, as so many suggest that we do, so if we use him as our example of how to follow and serve Jesus, then why don't we start here with his philosophy about working and being paid. Next, let's talk about the biblical principles for maintaining the integrity of the ecclesia. There's two things we read of that help to maintain the integrity of the ecclesia. Both are emphasized over and over in the New Testament. The first is being watchful and on guard against false teaching. And the second is discipline within the local cells or communities of the ecclesia. Well, nobody likes to be disciplined. <laughs> Most normal people don't like to discipline others. The topic of discipline is a downer. Nevertheless, it's a topic that Paul brings up throughout his letters. Both guarding against false teaching and maintaining discipline support the three primary principles of the ecclesia, the, that of being faith, hope, and love. Paul had no tolerance for those who introduced incorrect beliefs, which could result in a false faith. He sets us straight when we get off track regarding what Jesus has said that he's going to do in the future. That's what our hope is in. And he has no tolerance for those who drag sin into the ecclesia. It's love that motivates his lack of tolerance. Love for the individual sinning, that they might repent, love for the victims, that they might be restored, and love for the rest of the community of the ecclesia that they're a part of. Paul starts off chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians writing of a man who had sexual relationship with his father's wife, you know, his stepmom. And that serves as a platform for Paul to launch into a short discourse on discipline. There can be no turning a blind eye to such matters of immorality within the ecclesia. Paul was worried that tolerance of such sin caused it to spread. As Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 9, he said, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens, leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There is no hesitancy on Paul's part to judge those who are considered the called out ones. To maintain the integrity of the ecclesia at Corinth, there is only instruction to act swiftly and sternly. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 5 verse 5. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. 
One of the goals of discipline within the ecclesia is that of discouraging others from engaging in the same type of unacceptable, sinful, or destructive behavior. Paul is in favor of making examples of people. He instructed Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 this, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Wow. So, however, the goal of discipline is not only to discourage such behavior among the rest of the ecclesia, but it's also so the one sinning may potentially still be, quote, saved in the day of the Lord, unquote. This demonstrates that even during discipline, Paul, and thus we should also, still has the eternal status of the sinner in mind. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul wrote about discipline causing sorrow or godly grief, which is a good thing. It leads to repentance. Repentance and restoration is how the entire ugly scenario of delivering one over to Satan may be avoided. Repentance and restoration were the initial goals that Jesus was talking about when he addressed what to do when you've been wronged by someone. You confront them in love by yourself. If they fail to respond, or like repent, you take another witness with you to talk to them. And if they still fail to repent, you take the case before the entire ecclesia. If at that point they still fail to repent, they incur the maximum penalty. They're put out of the ecclesia and treated like a non-believer. That system is strongly echoed in the writings of Paul. For example, Paul wrote uh, his protege Titus this, Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. That's found in Titus chapter 3, verse 10. The Apostle James also calls for repentance and restoration when he wrote this, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. That's found in James chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. Well, what Paul commanded the Corinthians to do comes after Jesus' prescription for repentance and restoration has failed. Here's what Paul wrote to the Galatians regarding someone who has fallen into sin. This is from Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ." What does it mean to deliver such a one to Satan? Considering that Jesus referred to Satan as the chief prince of this world, and then Paul called him the god of this world, it means to give the person over to the natural and supernatural ramifications of their sin. This demonstrates the relationship between Satan, who's considered the god of this world, and the Most High, one and only true God, who sets the boundaries of Satan and what actual power he has over this world. Romans 13 clearly states that God uses 
the secular authorities to hold all humans accountable. Yet, these secular authorities come under the jurisdiction of Satan's kingdom. Well, this is how God uses Satan's systems to bring about his own greater good. It's not outside of God's control just because we say Satan is the God of this world. Well, God, (laughs) the Almighty Yahweh, is the God of all worlds. He sets the parameters they operate within. Satan's kingdom is a world where mercy is the rare exception, not the rule. His world locks you up when you commit a crime or causes you to swing from the gallows. His world will give you sexually transmitted diseases, destroy your marriage and reputation, or cause you to lose everything you own in a lawsuit. Well, contrast that to the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of mercy and grace, a kingdom where the king pays the price for our sins and forgives the sinner. What Paul is saying is to let the one who sinned reap the natural ramifications of their sin, delivering someone over to Satan while asking God to intervene and show the person mercy just doesn't make sense. That's like saying, Dear Lord, I'm giving this person over to be punished. Will you please override my actions? Delivering one over to Satan means not trying to spare them from the ramifications of their sin. According to Paul, it also means not associating with that person. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, he instructs the ecclesia this, not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Essentially, the brother or sister is to be put out of fellowship with the rest of the ecclesia and left to suffer the consequences of their actions. You might think of it as tough love. So, what about those of you who may be objecting to this and saying, But all have sinned and fallen short. We've all been shown so much mercy by God. Shouldn't we show mercy? Aren't we called to forgive? Well, who says Paul's solution is not merciful? Who says the one sinning hasn't been forgiven by the one who's sinned against? What Paul told the Corinthians to do was the loving thing to do. After all, the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son he receives. Tough love is a biblical practice. It's not only the loving thing for the one committing the sin, but the loving thing for their victim and the loving thing for the rest of the ecclesia. Where's the line drawn on what sins are so bad as to put a brother or sister out of a fellowship? Paul gives us a list of examples, but the list does not seem to be a list of sins. It appears to be a list of types of unrepentant sinners people who have earned the title and reputation for committing a particular sin. For example, a person who is known for speaking abusively or contemptuously towards another person is said to be a railer or a reviler. Well, anyone, (laughs) including myself, 
may say the occasional unkind thing about someone and not gain the reputation of being a destructive character assassin. Similarly, hey, I said that right this time. Similarly, maybe I'm getting better at it. <laughs> People may drink a single glass of wine on an empty stomach and unexpectedly feel a little lightheaded and not be considered a drunkard. A person may eat far more than needed at Thanksgiving time and not be considered a glutton. It appears that gaining such reputations and title, as Paul mentions, only comes when someone becomes known for such a behavior. What they did was not a one-off. And if they're known for the sin, by definition, they're not repentant. Being repentant means to stop, turn, and go the other way. The title or reputation may also be earned based on the severity of the sin. Like a rapist, for example, only needs to commit one rape to earn that title. Paul's list includes those who are known to be sexually immoral, or those who are trying to get someone else's stuff, or they speak abusively or contemptuously of another person, or they make it a habit of intentionally becoming intoxicated, or they extort things of value from others. Those types of people make Paul's list of those who should be put out of fellowship in the local ecclesia. A few verses later in chapter 6, Paul gives us more information as to why the chronic unrepentant sinner should be put out of the fellowship with the rest of the ecclesia. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Chronic unrepentant sinners have no place amongst the ecclesia because their behavior is an indicator that they are unauthentic believers and not elect to salvation by God. The fellowship of the ecclesia is only for those who have been called out and appointed by God to salvation. Everyone continues to sin, regardless of, electing, of their election to salvation. However, there's a difference between the called out of God who hates sin and struggle not to do it, despite losing the struggle at times. The difference is between them and the non-elect who willingly allow sin to rule their lives without struggling against it, oftentimes trying to justify it. Paul's advice to the Corinthians regarding what to do with the unrepentant sinner within the ecclesia was based on Jesus' command to put such a person out of fellowship and treat them as the most despised unbeliever. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 18, verse 17. Now, please note that this is the most severe biblically-based disciplinary penalty that can be imposed by those who make up the ecclesia. Death and torture are never suggested and are contrary to anything proposed in Scripture. Yet, death and torture are two tactics that's often been used by the church throughout history on people that don't agree with them or have fallen out of favor with them or out of uh, communion. 
Well, let's move on now. Uh, kind of a similar topic about judging people, but this time it's judging people outside of the ecclesia. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 to 12 here. Paul was in complete agreement with Jesus about judgment, accountability, and integrity within the ecclesia. He was also on the same page with Jesus as to judging those outside of the ecclesia. We shouldn't be surprised when we see Paul echoing the intention behind Jesus' words, Judge not, or you will be judged. According to Paul, those in the ecclesia have no right to judge those who are outside the ecclesia, the world, unbelievers, the non-elect that we are surrounded by. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 to 13. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Those who are outside, God judges. Interestingly, Paul explains what he wrote to the Corinthians in an early, earlier letter, which we don't have. This is like a letter that came before 1 Corinthians, but we don't have that. In that letter, he told uh, the Corinthians not to keep company with sexually immoral people. He clarified that he didn't mean not to associate with the sexually immoral who are outside of the ecclesia. That's what he said when he, uh, he meant when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, quote, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, unquote. You're like, what? <laughs> Go ahead and associate with them? Well, Paul went on to explain, like I just said, that it's with those committing these acts who have been a part of the ecclesia that they are not to associate with. As Jesus said, the unrepentant sinner who is a part of the ecclesia ends up in a category worse than the unbelievers. Man, how does that happen? Paul's reasoning that the called out don't have to quit associating with unbelievers who are guilty of those same things is because that in order to do so, one would need to leave the planet. Literally, he wrote, quote, go out of this world, unquote. Yet, there's a fine balance of living in this world and doing business with unbelievers while not having any part in the unholy practices and customs they participate in. In his letter to the Ephesians, in chapter 5, verses 6 to 11, Paul wrote this, Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh from the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them, for you were sometimes in darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is all excuse me, the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Geopolitically speaking, if you're a citizen of the United States, you have a right to make your political voice heard through the political process. However, 
As a citizen of the United States, your opinion does not matter in Iran, nor is it welcome. Spiritually speaking, this is the same for a citizen of the kingdom of heaven who's living as a heavenly foreign national in Satan's kingdom, this world. We're to hold others of the ecclesia who are dwelling with us in this foreign land accountable. However, as far as our living among the citizens of Satan's kingdom, we should expect our opinions and judgments to be unwelcome. I mean, we could still voice them, but they're going to be unwelcome. Who am I to be telling Satan how to run his kingdom? Who am I to be judging his children? Paul tells us that that's God's responsibility. We never see Jesus and his apostles judging this world in Scripture, do we? That time will come, but on the contrary, on several occasions we read in the New Testament that while we await the return of Jesus, we must respect and obey the authorities of this world while we maintain our distance from them. That's a big topic, a serious topic, and a lot of people today are getting really wrapped up in the politics of this world. That's some good advice from Paul about that. Now, as I said earlier, we're going to move on to another topic here, the compensation for the clergy. I've, uh, I have talked, and I will bring up several more passages that we come up on that are used all the time to justify paying pastors that are just really taken out of context. Paul most often wrote about how he did not normally accept support from the called out that he was visiting. Well, that being the case, Paul is clear when he wrote this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Okay. On the surface, this sounds clear enough. However, let's not make the mistake that so many do when they pull a proof text verse out of Scripture when they're looking to make a point and ignore all of the rest. For example, after writing this, Paul stated that he would rather die <laughs> than take any money for preaching the gospel. He makes a case that those who are making a living off the gospel have already received their reward, their paycheck. He didn't want any part of that. So he wrote this. This is uh, chapter 9, verse 18. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. When Paul said, the Lord has commanded, he was likely referring to when Jesus sent out his disciples and instructed them to take nothing with them as they traveled, but to depend on the generosity of those that they're visiting. The reasoning Jesus used is because the workers are worth their wages. You can read about that in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. Like the Apostle Paul, those that Jesus sent out were traveling evangelists. They were not stationary pastors or teachers living long-term in the same community. They were transitory missionaries who, in addition to having regular expenses, had travel expenses. It would have been difficult to provide for their regular expenses in addition to travel expenses without having assistance. A big 
community of ecclesia that might have regularly gathered in the first century would have numbered in the, like, 30s at most, including men, women, and children. This is hardly a number of people that required a full-time pastor or could be expected to pay a preacher or pastor living wages to study and preach. Such ideas are an invention of professional clergy that came about centuries after Paul wrote his letters. The idea of a paid pastor among a local body of believers was completely unheard of in the first century. The biggest thing to understand about this passage, which on the surface sounds like every preacher should be making a living off the gospel, is that 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is not making a case for local pastors to receive any monetary compensation. What Paul is doing throughout chapter 9 is making a case that he is just as deserving of the same compensation and benefits as the other apostles who leave their homes to spread the gospel. Even though he then makes a case against taking any compensation, he makes the case for any traveling evangelist to receive support if they want it, and then saying if they take it, they've received their reward. The context heavily implies that Paul is speaking of traveling evangelists, missionaries. In the next episode, we'll be talking about how there are many parts of the body and how people are individually equipped or gifted to be able to perform all of the various parts, the functions of the parts of the body. Then up ahead in the book of Ephesians, we're going to read that Paul differentiates between evangelists, pastors, and teachers, differentiates between them as all being different parts of the body. So understand that evangelists and pastors are not necessarily the same parts of the body. Evangelists preach the gospel to unbelievers. Pastors shepherd or watch over and take care of local members of the ecclesia. I encourage you to go back and read the entire chapter, chapter 9 in 1 Corinthians, and uh, understand what I'm saying there. You'll see how he's like making this big case for, am I not just like those other guys? How come they get to take their wives along and I don't? Uh, you know, is it just me and Barnabas that don't get these things? Uh, you'll see that he's talking about uh, his, his equals, his uh, co-workers in the Lord. The most direct command which is not guidance or a suggestion, that we have regarding a local community of ecclesia where clergy is stationary is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 to 9. I'll read that for you here. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we don't have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us." I read parts of that earlier to you, but I wanted to read the whole thing so you'd hear the whole package all at once. Well, Paul writes that while he was in Thessalonica working on behalf of Jesus, he provided for his physical needs by working night and day. 
His expectation was that the ecclesia all, quote, follow, unquote, his example and do the same. I can't imagine anyone coming back with a retort to Paul that, hey, I just don't have time to make a living and be a pastor. I have heard that reasoning used more than a couple of times in my life. I speculate if Paul were to have responded to such a statement, it would be, okay, go and make your living in peace. It sounds like you shouldn't be a pastor. Paul is serious about what he commanded in his second letter to the Thessalonians in this regard. He continues to elaborate that if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. He finishes his letter in the next paragraph by writing, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. That's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. Now, pastors often cite Paul's letter to Timothy, uh, which you can find in 1 Timothy 5, chapters 17 to 18. They cite that as justification for collecting a salary. After all, Paul quotes Jesus again there, quote, the laborer deserves his wages, unquote. They claim that by Paul writing, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. He says that that means that those who preach and teach, like modern pastors, should be paid well. They equate the word honor with monetary compensation. I partially agree. Paul is talking about giving such a worthy elder what they are due. But that form of compensation, just like Paul says, is honor and respect, not money. If we're talking about honor being some form of monetary compensation, then we have to answer the question, what is the monetary value of one unit of honor? What amount does double honor equal in dollars, or drachma, whatever form of money they had then, if a single unit of honor equals zero dollars? Assuming others in the ecclesia receive X units of honor, and the elders are worth double X honor, what does that mean? Were they paying a salary to everyone to participate in the ecclesia when they gathered? Well, of course not. If honor equals monetary compensation, when Paul, only nine verses later, wrote, Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, does that mean that slaves should be paying their masters? Honor, in this passage regarding slaves and their masters, is the same word that's used in very close proximity regarding what elders are due. Honor means honor in the normal, natural, natural, customary way we understand honor to mean. Those who put time in selflessly studying, teaching from Scripture, and serving others within the ecclesia without compensation deserve our honor and respect. Another passage of scripture used by pastors in support of their paycheck is Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 to 7. It's there where the called out ones of Galatia were told by Paul this, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. 
Those who say this scripture supports paying pastors say that anyone who is taught, like a student, is to share their money and resources with their teacher. But this, this verse has nothing to do with money. Paul just spent the first five and a half chapters of his letter to the Galatians warning them about accepting bad teaching from bad teachers. Why would Paul suddenly throw in this random comment at the end of the letter? Oh yeah, and don't forget to pay them. <laughs> Paul is simply saying, while we should reject false teaching, we should embrace or share in the truth which is all good things, which is taught by teachers. In other words, learn from those who are teaching the truth. Embrace and accept that truth. The truth is what we should share in and have commune with our teachers over, not money. Whereas supporting transitory evangelists is a biblical practice, I don't think we can say the same about local pastors. Remember, Jesus only told his traveling evangelists to accept assistance from those that they would be visiting. And then Paul echoed the words of Jesus in making a case that the apostles and evangelists were also worthy of accepting support. Even so, he said he'd rather die than accept such money. And none of this had to do with any local pastors. The bottom line is, in all of this, and all these scriptural passages that I just went to and visited, is that paying a local pastor a regular salary may be, probably is, let me just say it, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> is an unbiblical practice. In other words, it is not supported by scripture. And... If it causes the member of the clergy being compensated, you know, your pastor, to not even attempt to make their own living when they could, it may even be an anti-biblical practice. Okay, so, however, considering this, if you're convinced or convicted that you should still financially support your pastor, there's nothing wrong with doing so. Again, unless you're facilitating someone who's a pastor for the wrong reason. That reason being they're only a pastor to make a living off of it, to profit by it. Well, that issue is between you and Jesus, who has entrusted money to you to steward for him. I'm talking about your own personal money. How are you going to use it for him if you think uh, it is a good cause for Jesus to pay your pastor? then that's between you and Jesus. But I just made an argument that it is not supported directly by Scripture. So if a local church says that someone, like a pastor, is just too busy serving the church to make a living, perhaps your local church is structured unbiblically. There's an extreme likelihood that others in the church are not participating in the way that they're supposed to be participating according to the biblical model. The pastor's picking up their slack. And that may be because of unbiblical or anti-biblical cultural expectations and traditions that's been placed on that church. Or it may be because the clergy member who's just too busy to work is engaging in 
unbiblical work themselves. Like they're spending time facing outward into the community when their calling as a pastor, a shepherd, is supposed to be focused on inward support of the ecclesia. Maybe the pastor is too heavily involved with spreading the gospel and evangelism. Okay, maybe his calling is that of an evangelist, but not necessarily a pastor if he doesn't have enough time to do both and hold down a job. Maybe the pastor is involved with some sort of community service outreach or social justice or political causes, thinking that is a part of their calling as a pastor. Well, maybe the pastor has been told by the church that's what they want him to do. Well, these things may be good and beneficial to the community, and it might warm everybody's heart within the church. But then, we are no longer talking about a biblical ecclesia. We're talking about supporting a social services club. Maybe there are a couple of other people in the local ecclesia who have the gift of being a pastor, who could share the workload. But since they have not been formally ordained, according to the church bylaws, (laughs) they can't serve as a pastor. Well, that is where we're going to end at this time. I just gave you a lot to think about again. Next time, we're going to pick up in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians and see what Paul has to say about the use of spiritual gifts within the ecclesia. Until then, may God bless you and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com, or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. (laughs) ¶¶